Hello and welcome back. You're listening to Clarification, a podcast by me, your host, Claire Adamson. And in this podcast, I'm going to be using my background in psychology to dance in between the lines of clarity and complexity. I want to make complex psychology concepts simple and show really how applicable they are to our daily lives by bringing in my personal experience. Today, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about myself. And in fact, this episode could be considered the story of my life. I don't want to get into the habit of putting a disclaimer before the beginning of an episode, but I felt particularly called to to do this for this episode because what I'm going to be talking about is very personal and vulnerable to me, and I've gone back and forth debating of whether I should, and I stumbled upon this quote, and somebody said this to me recently. It's by Maggie Kuhn, and she said, Speak the truth, even if your voice shakes. So forgive me, bear with me if my voice sounds shaky. This is something that I have been grappling with for my entire life. And I feel like at the moment, it's something that I can speak about from a place of clarity and understanding. But it also is not the end of my life, you know? Our life story changes as we grow, and I feel like in the future, I will reiterate this topic in another format, another form, another way, but just because I've said it once doesn't mean that the story is over, doesn't mean that I have it all figured out, but this is my current understanding of myself, and if that could help one person or one person could feel a little bit more understood when listening to this, then that already means the world to me. So let's get into the episode. In today's episode, I'm going to be, I'm going to try to answer the question, where are you from? Because I have a really hard time answering that question. And it's often the question that comes up first when you meet new people. Where are you from? A part of me is like, why are people so obsessed with this? Like, why do you want to know? Why are you so nosy? Mind your business. <laughs> and the other part of me, the less defensive part of me that perhaps has an answer to this question, knows that people like to classify things, that we living in, in an incredibly complicated world and giving complicated things labels helps us understand things better. When you give something a label, there are certain characteristics or expectations attached to this label. And so when someone fits under a label or in a specific category, then you can predict what to expect from them. While I understand the importance of labels for human beings to understand the world around us, what I find that these labels often lead to is essentialism. Essentialism is the idea that Groups of people have naturally set and defined characteristics that join them together and set them apart from others. Essentialism aims to sort groups into permanent categories under the belief that biologically they have factors that distinguish them from other groups. Essentialism is a dangerous thing, and particularly racial essentialism gave birth to the idea of white supremacy, that there were characteristics and biological factors that made white people better than the rest of the world. And they used this to dominate all other races 
under the notion that biologically they were superior. So if essentialism gave way to things like imperialism, colonialism, slavery, why do we still use notions of identity and identity markers that were defined and given to us by white supremacists? Then I start to think about things like cultural and ethnic essentialism and how it's so complex in places like Africa, where the countries as we know them today were defined and made by white imperialists who took a ruler and said, I want this part and this part, and you can have that other part. Within Africa, we see countries with so many different tribal ethnic groups all grouped together under one national identity. People are expected to adhere to a singular idea of what it means to belong to that country. I feel like notions of national identity become even more complicated when we think about colonially imposed immigration or indentured labor. For example, in the 1890s, the British had planned to build a railway in Kenya from the port of Mombasa to Uganda, but the Kenyans had refused to participate or build be the laborers. And the British, because they had also colonized India, mind you, the British had colonized half the world at this point, but they brought in 30,000 Indians to build this railway. And now you find that you have generations of Indians who have lived in Kenya for a long time, since the 1890s. And in fact, when we think about very popular Kenyan dishes, what comes to mind? To me, things like chapati, biryani, samosa, these are all fundamentally Indian dishes that have been embedded in Kenyan culture. And yet you still find lots of discourse denying Indians any sort of Kenyan identity. And I think this is really harmful because belonging, as I said in the first episode, is one of the fundamental primary human needs. I also want to be real with you guys and admit that in the past, I've been guilty of doing this as well. I could sit here on this podcast and pretend like I'm all high and mighty and above doing things like this, but I'm not. And I'm not afraid to admit that I was wrong because I now know better. And I saw like a Twitter post the other day that said, if you're not at least a little embarrassed about who you were two, three years ago, then it's probably because you haven't grown that much. And I would personally rather take pride in the fact that I've grown and I now know better because looking back on these situations, for me, what was happening and what I think is happening when people are denying others group membership is this kind of power trip where you feel powerful because you assume this gatekeeper position where you have the power to either deny or confirm and validate somebody else's identity, which is incredibly problematic because everyone needs to feel like they belong somewhere. Maslow's hierarchy is a pyramid where you start at the bottom with the most basic needs, and that is physiological needs like shelter, water, food, and then security needs, just having a safe environment. And then next on the pyramid is the need to belong. And at the top of the pyramid is self-actualization, which means realizing one's full intellectual, creative, and social potential. 
And I'm going on and on about this need to belong because without the lower levels of the pyramid, it's impossible to reach self-actualization. Okay, so I've started this episode out with a couple of definitions, a little bit of history for you, and now I'm going to speak more about my personal experience with identity. So when people ask me where I'm from, the first thing that I reply is that I'm from Kenya. I have a Kenyan passport, a Kenyan ID. My mother is Kenyan. I grew up in Kenya. I lived there until I was 16 and it's home. It's home to me. It's everything. But when I say this in Kenya, people would literally respond like, no, where are you really from? And this was really hurtful to me growing up because they didn't believe me when I told them that I was from Kenya. And now I look back and I understand because my dad is also from the UK and he's white. And so I'm biracial and I'm not monoracially black. And so people wanted to know that part of the puzzle as well. I've just never lived in the UK. I have a British passport, which is, you know, passport privilege. But I could never say like, yeah, I'm from the UK because... I'm not, and I don't feel a part of their culture. But when I would say that I'm from Kenya, that would also be denied. So even though culturally I felt Kenyan, and this was my identity, being biracial meant that I had a very different experience in Kenya than people who are monoracially Black. For example, if I would go to a restaurant with my dad, I noticed that we would get a lot faster service, and a lot of other privileges, which is associated with whiteness. Whereas, for example, if I went to uh, the market with my mom, the vendors would hike up the prices of what they were trying to sell us if they saw me with her. It's not like these experiences or the treatment that I would get comes from nowhere. Because I feel like in Kenya, we're still dealing a lot with the remnants of colonialism, of white supremacy, and the notions that whiteness is automatically equated to having more money. When I was just walking around the street by myself, I would get harassed a lot by people calling me Muzungu, which means white person. That was especially hurtful because it meant being wrongly identified, like I'm not white. White people wouldn't consider me white, but Kenyans would think that I'm white. And this type of misidentification on a daily basis, I feel like led to a vicious cycle of alienation. Because the more I was misidentified or denied belonging to a national identity or being considered as Kenyan, the more I would withdraw from that group and stop trying to belong. And even though this was a coping mechanism at the time, just trying to survive in that environment, it did mean that the more I withdrew, the less Kenyan I would be considered because I wasn't trying as hard to fit in and belong. But it's strange because your identity shouldn't be something that you have to perform for other people's validation. I pause and I hesitate because 
I know when I say this, I run the risk of sounding like I'm saying, pity me, pity me, I don't fit in anywhere, I don't belong anywhere. And it's giving tragic mulatto. (laughs) And um, if you don't know, this is a stereotype that emerged post-emancipation of enslaved people in the U.S., And it's of a biracial woman with a white father and a black mother who is distraught and distressed at the idea that she doesn't get to be perceived as white. Because for me, at least, let's face it, when I'm in Kenya, I benefit a lot from white privilege because I'm being perceived as white. So while there are clearly advantages that are undeniable... What I don't think gets talked about enough is the fact that proximity to whiteness can also mean violence. And by violence, I mean racism. Because I have experienced racism from my white family members, and sometimes it's overt forms of racism, and sometimes it's much subtler, hard-to-spot forms of racism, like racial microaggressions. And when I think about when random people on the street have said racist things towards me, It didn't bother me as much in comparison to when it was coming from my family member, because these are supposed to be the people who support you, care for you, love you, and understand you, and yet you find them still saying ignorant, racist things. It doesn't help that in Kenya, they call biracial people nusu-nusu, which means half-half, or muzungu fake. Can you imagine being called muzungu fake? Like... That's outrageous in my opinion, but the last one is also 0.5 or 0.5, as in between one and zero. And when I first heard this, like I had a deep existential crisis, I think at the age of like 11, 12, being like, if I'm 0.5, then what is one and what is zero? So there was that moment of existentialism or the crisis where I was really thinking hard about these things, but eventually I ended up just adopting this name because it was a label and I didn't have any labels or people who would claim me as belonging to this group. And so calling myself 0.5 was one way that I felt like I could have a community. But at the same time, that looked like gravitating towards essentialist ideas of what it meant to be 0.5, which is was not helpful at all at the time. I moved to South Africa when I was 16 to join a institution that was focused on pan-Africanism. It accepted people from all over the continent, and so we had a very diverse student body. And it was really in this place and in this institution that I was able to have and develop a strong sense of belonging that really informed my identity and who I am today. Because at this institution, they centered African and Black voices. They encouraged us to think about decolonizing the mind and introduced us to texts by Franz Fanon, Steve Biko, Mariama Ba, and many more. And I was able to feel like I was belonging to this place because we all had a shared sense of values and a shared vision for the continent, wanting to better Africa as a whole. And instead of a superficial 
identity-like nationality that is imposed from a external point of view, we had all self-identified with this mission and joined this institution. And not to give too much credit or clout to the institution because it was really the people, um, my classmates, being surrounded by strong Black women who had such firm understandings of themselves that encouraged me to see myself in this way and in this light. It was here that I cut off my perm, you know, I went natural, that I started thinking about feminism from an African perspective. And it really changed a lot for me to be belonging in a place where people claimed me and I claimed them back. So I just want to take a moment to express my deep gratitude to all my friends and classmates at that institution. They really shaped me and really helped me see myself as a Black girl, as a Black woman, because they held up a mirror for me in the best kind of ways and said, you are one of us in a way that I'd never experienced before. So you changed my life. You know yourselves. Hopefully you're listening to this. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. I love you guys from infinity to infinity. (laughs) Here, blackness wasn't defined by the darkness of your skin, but by how far you had decolonized your mind and had decentered white thinking and white supremacist ideals. But my journey in understanding myself and my identity didn't end there because while now at this point I had accepted, embraced, and loved the Black part of myself and my Black identity, I was still biracial and still was navigating understanding what this meant. South Africa calls itself the Rainbow Nation. And with their deep history of segregation, racism, uh, white imperialism, white supremacy, and apartheid, they have a very ethnically diverse population, to say the least. But they do have a category when they speak about races in their country that is defined as colored people. And colored people in South Africa are the descendants of generations of mixed people, mixed between Africans, Europeans, Asian ethnic groups. And they're not in the same way I am, first-generation biracials with one parent from each culture, but generations of people who'd been mixed in this way. And they, in fact, have a cultural identity. They have language, they have traditions, they have food. And when I moved to South Africa and I saw this, and I saw their communities in real life, I was like, wow, there are places that mixed people do have whole cultural identities and are recognized by the state. And so there was one experience that I had in South Africa that was truly life-changing. After I had graduated from the high school I attended, a friend and I went on a trip to Cape Town and she was colored and she's from Cape Town. So she was showing me all the places she visited, her family. And one night we decided to go to a bar. It turned out to be more of a club and I didn't know what to expect. We entered the elevator, got out on the third floor, and when I walked into the event space, I was shocked for a couple of minutes. I just stood there taking in everything that I was seeing because for the first time in my 18 years of life, 
I had entered a space where everybody had the same skin complexion as me. Everyone in the room was mixed or colored in some way, and I didn't stand out. Psychology talks about visual saliency theory. And this is the idea that when you see something that is subjectively different in your environment, whether in color, appearance, behavior, it stands out to you more. It is more salient. And for all my life, I felt like I'd stuck out like a sore thumb. And for once, I entered the space where I could just blend in. And it really blew my mind. It was a mind fuck for like two or three minutes. I was just absorbing what it felt like not to stand out so much. While this was the first time that I visually did not stand out, it didn't necessarily mean that I was part of this group. Even though I couldn't be visually identified as an outsider, I'm not South African and I'm not a colored person. I don't know about their culture and traditions and their history. And so I don't belong to this group either. But I have to say again, just for once, it was astounding to be part of the majority group. And if you're somewhere where you live and you take this for granted every day, being part of the homogenous group, I really want you to rethink that because I'd not experienced it for 18 years of my life, and I haven't experienced it since then either. You know, what's funny about the tragic mulatto stereotype and kind of conundrum that the person, the woman faces is that I always felt quite the opposite. I wish that I was perceived as black and I didn't even know this or I felt it, but didn't know it on an intellectual level until I read this book. It is The Sex Lives of African Women. And shout out to my friends who gifted it to me for my birthday last year because reading this book genuinely changed my life. In it, Nana Darkoa interviews around 30, 36 African women with an all-inclusive definition of African and an all-inclusive definition of woman. And there's this one story that really stood out to me and It's on page 101, for those of you who want to read along. She says, I never felt that I could be myself while I was growing up. I grew up between Ghana and the UK, and from a young age, I was desired by boys and men who saw me as beautiful because of my light skin and facial features. I was always told, you have good hair. It didn't matter that I grew up hating myself because I wanted to look more African as I felt that would make me a whole person, rather than someone who didn't know whether they were African or Arab. Further down the page, she continues, Even though I've never felt beautiful, I knew that people perceived me as such by Western beauty standards. I rarely wanted attention. The majority of the time, I didn't want to be seen. I wanted to be invisible. I didn't find much pleasure in the attention I got from men and boys, I just wanted to be safe. I'm going to give you a minute to let that sink in and sit. Because when I first read this, I kid you not, I shut the book and I sat down and I cried because for the first time someone had been able to put into words 
what I was experiencing being caught in between this binary of black and white and feeling like my identity was not legitimate because it was somewhere in the middle and that this notion of being 0.5 made me less of a human and less of a person because I was confused as to which category I belonged into. And it's heartbreaking to admit these things, but I also know and knew at that moment that more people felt like this, which is why it's something that I have to talk about. I think what I needed when I was younger was more reassurance and security in my identity that I did belong to these places and I was from these places regardless of what anybody else had to say. I wish I could tell my younger self that I didn't need all these stamps of approval from these random people about what my identity is and where I'm from because at the end of the day, who are these people really? Are they immigration officers? Are they handing out Kenyan passports and IDs? No, they weren't. So why did I give them so much power in being able to define me? The only authority that I needed to validate my identity was my own. Through recording this, I realized that I never had a hard time telling people where I'm from, but it would become really uncomfortable when other people would debate that information with me as if they knew more about my identity and how I identify than me. So if you're one of those people, just take a moment to rethink that because it's an awful thing to do to subject someone to your scrutiny and investigation. We must trust that people are the sole experts in their own experiences and their own identities. You have been listening to a brutally honest and vulnerable episode of Clarification. And if you made it this far, I want to personally express my gratitude for you, for your time, for listening to me grapple with my own identity. So please leave a brown heart in my Instagram comment section so I can thank you. So I can know who the real ones are who made it up until the very end. I appreciate you.